Location is 20 meters to the east of Hawthorne Alpha again. Do we know the does? Doe is orange 258, buck is light green 390. It's late October and researchers from the zoology department of University College Dublin are recording the mating sequences of the fallow deer in the Phoenix Park. Keep your eyes peeled. The work involves the filming of every action of the males, noting the time of each action, their exact locations, and most particularly, which females are impregnated. Mount and ejaculation 1036.56. Doe urinated. Just after mating. A young deer is conceived and life begins to continue on the herd of fallow deer that have existed here in the Phoenix Park for over 300 years now. October is the rutting season of the fallow deer. Males are extremely vocal as they assert their authority in order to mate with as many females as possible. Dr Tom Hayden of UCD has spent almost 20 years studying these deer and during October is a familiar sight along with the students in the park. So what exactly are they doing? We're interested in the details of the interactions that take place between the males and the females to understand exactly what's going on. Females on the day they mate tend to travel around the park a bit. It seems to us like they're looking over males and checking them out, moving one to the other. Eventually they settle on one and they tend to stay with him. Um, and um, this looks a bit disorganised here, but there, are, there is a sort of a distinct group of females that are interested in this male in here. And the other ones, of course, are not in East, just take no interest at all. They just carry on grazing or ruminating or, or looking on. And so we'll analyse these tapes later because we're interested to know what kind of vocal signals the male is delivering and exactly what it means. Well, you've been shouting instructions into the <laughs> microphone here for the last half hour. Tell us exactly what you've been doing. I'm just trying to organise where people are and where's the best place to watch the group and just getting the rest of the students out. But also you've been following individual deers there, the books. You yeah, know, every single move. Yeah, I've been taking the sequence of the mating and who he runs away from his, his little group. After doing this for years, can you predict really what the animals are going to do? Or is it different every time? Um, I would have a rough idea who's going to do something, but I could never. you can never predict exactly what's going to happen. The males are the bucks, the females does, and the young are called fawns. There is also an extensive vocabulary related to the bucks in their first six years, and they are respectively referred to as fawns, prickets, sorrels, sores, bear bucks and great bucks. Books and does live apart for most of the year, coming together for the rut. In the Phoenix Park, the books can be seen fighting for access to the females and the sound of clashing antlers and loud groans are a distinctive feature during the month of October. He's been here for about the last maybe oh, well over an hour with a group of females around him and in the last maybe half an hour they're beginning to show signs of estrus. And he's also showing some other females from his group away. Well, no, I know actually in, this is, it's so foggy. Those are actually young males. 
young males are roughly the same size as females. They're hard to tell from this distance. With no antlers? With, with, with very simple antlers. In fact, there's very short spikes, and they try and sneak in among the females to mate with them. So that's why he's sort of, seems a tad agitated. And we think a lot of this groaning is directed at crickets. If you notice, the next time he makes a rush, you know, the rate go up slightly. And I think the more annoyed he is, the higher is the rate. And we think the increase in groaning right just after mating is warning. Essentially, it's more to do with warning other males rather than attracting females. And it's interesting to note that in this particular case, that group of females he's with, several of them, are, are probably close to coming into estrus. And uh, they tend to gather more or less voluntarily. He doesn't have to round them up, as in some species where the male essentially corrals the females and hangs on to them for as long as possible. In this case, they gather more or less voluntarily. Is that one young male just behind him there, maybe 20 uh, minutes or so behind him? It, Yes, it is, yeah. He doesn't seem to take much, pay much attention to him. Well, I think the younger ones, for the most part, have a res- keep a respectful distance. I mean, if you notice, he walks away, a few move in. You see the two moving in from the, yeah, from yeah. the right. But they, they don't get that close. It's the younger ones who cause him the most trouble. And you see, he's had a rush at another one there. It's generally accepted that the herd of fallow deer present in the Phoenix Park are direct descendants of those introduced back in 1662. John McCullen is the chief superintendent of the Phoenix Park and over the years he has taken a special interest in the deer. Uh, It's probably the same progeny uh, of deer, certainly the same genetic strain uh, that has lasted down through the centuries uh, that are here now in the Phoenix Park. How many deer have you in the park at the moment? Uh, at the moment, about 700, uh, Terry, and uh, as you see, there are a range, uh, there are a range of ages and uh, colours and so mm. on. As we walked through the park, I couldn't help but notice the absence of saplings and young trees. Yes, uh, well, as you probably know from looking around the park itself, you'll see no natural regeneration, which, you know, in an area that's over 700 hectares uh, seems a pity in some ways. Now, obviously, if the numbers of deer are brought down, you would have some regeneration, but you could never really guarantee that that would be the case. And uh, we have in some areas of the park enclosed areas with traditional deer fencing. You'll see up along the Arden Survey Road as you go towards the Furry Glen uh, I think probably the first time in 100 years we've erected quite a large area uh, that's fenced in with a deer fence and that's traditional sort of strap rail fence so if we want natural vegetation which we do and will be part of our new management plan uh, we will be fencing off areas to allow that natural regeneration because uh, the deer won't allow it And the other major problem John has to deal with are those deer struck by cars travelling through the park. There's probably somewhat approaching 30,000 cars a day go through the Phoenix Park. Day and night, the main avenue uh, are open. We close off the side gates around 11 o'clock at night, open them at 7 in the morning. But uh, it's really, in a sense, I suppose, uh, it's a contradiction sort of having wildlife roaming around over 700 deer and the 30,000 cars. So we do get quite a few casualties in a year. And we know from our our studies and uh, study of accidents and so on that the smaller the population of deer, uh, the less that are killed in, in a particular year. 
Despite these fatalities, the fallow deer in the park are very successful, so much so that on occasions they need to be culled to keep their numbers in check. In fact, deer worldwide are extremely successful. They can be found on every continent except Australia, where that ecological niche has been taken over by the kangaroo. Fallow deer are one of the three species of deer to be found in Ireland, the other two being the sika and the red deer. The fallow is the most numerous and can be found in almost every county. Most commonly, they are found in mixed and deciduous woodland. Many have escaped from deer parks and are now breeding in the wild. Although those found in the Phoenix Park are relatively tame and approachable, this is not the case for the other species of deer, as I found out on a trip to Donard in County Wicklow. If you look down straight in front of us here. Yeah, book. Uh, oh, stag, a stag, stag. Yeah. very, very good. Uh, eight pints, uh, seeker there. Now that was only about uh, not a hundred yards away. No, no, less, less than a hundred yards. And that was but probably the one that we heard there earlier. Uh, most likely, but you probably you could have three or four stags living in this in this area. Uh, he would be what that's a, an example of uh, our good uh, deer management here. That's a very good quality stag. You know, that's that's he's top of the top of the range. Would you expect to get as close to that when you're out walking here? Uh, well, we did now, and we were standing. Would that be normal? Uh, it, normal as in the more time that you spend in these places, yes, you will you will walk into them in the most unexpected places and, and times. And sometimes I think when you're actually talking and not uh, not doing what you're what you think you should you should be doing, uh, they actually walk out and uh, I think that to see what's what's going on. But it's it's fantastic to see now such a good good a good quality animal as that. But uh, would you have seen that yourself? No. No. Would you have expected to see that? I wouldn't have expected to see it, and I certainly wouldn't have seen it because I wouldn't have been looking for it. Really, I would have thought. No, that's that us being here with our scent being yeah, given off, see, that's, talking. That's, and that's where a trained, trained eye uh, been used to uh, to seeing these animals in their in their own environment. With patience, wild seeker deer can be seen in County Wicklow. John Fenton is a professional deer hunter and has had an interest in deer all his life. I'd be regarded as a professional deer, deer stalker or hunter at, at this stage. Uh, it's part, part of my life. I, I started uh, going with my father at the age of maybe eight, year, eight years of age when he was hunting. Uh, both in hunting and observing deer, he, he had a great interest himself in, the, in wildlife. And from the age of eight onwards, I've been in the forest looking at looking at uh, everything that goes on, from the rust to calving time to going and watching the watching what's happening at the calving time and trying to trying to get as much information as 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 possible, let's say, on them. But my 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 love for the wildlife brought me into 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 hunting because it is part of the part of uh, the ecology that that the that the um, these animals have to be have to be looked after, and it does and involved culling and I got about 15 years ago um, I leased out a lot of areas around in within my own locality and from that I've developed a small business where I've taken some a smaller number of clients each each year uh, to, to shoot seeker and that helps to pay me my, my pay me in my in my time in, in looking, looking after the area 
And of course, the deer that you shoot, to, they're, they're, they're not just any old deer. You're picking out the weakest ones. Yes. So that you're improving the genetic stock. Yeah, we try to improve the genetic stock at, at, at all times. Uh, like you see this type that we saw there this morning. Like that's that's a, just a, a, a very good example of what you, what you can achieve. Like the fallow deer, Sika were also introduced to Ireland, but much later, sometime in the mid-19th century. And they are the smallest of our deer. They can be found in counties Wicklow, Wexford, Kerry, Tyrone, Fermanagh and Limerick. But unlike the fallow, which produces a deep cough-like groan, Sika produce a much higher-pitched call. Now, you've been very lucky, Terry, this morning. Uh, we're, we're past the end of the, of the rut with the seeker. I didn't think we'd hear that this morning. Uh, yes, we, you, can be, you can be lucky, even though right up to Christmas. But hopefully you'll pick that up on your, on your table. That's, that's, that's the real seeker call, the, the real natural seeker call that you, that you hear. And you hear that uh, uh, quite a lot in the, in the rut. Mm, the rutting so, season, of course, is, is October. We've gone about a month or so past that now. Yes. Is it usual to hear it this time of year? Uh, yeah, it is. It is usual. You'll, you'll hear it right up to Christmas. Uh, you, will, you will have uh, hinds that will come into, in, into heat after the, after the rut. Maybe they, they didn't stand first time or didn't, they didn't, didn't hold. And right up to maybe Christmas, you'll get the odd hind that will still be coming into, into season. So uh, the stag is still interested in, in, in having his fun. Um, how far away is that stag? Uh, I would say no more than 200 metres. Like so many other animals in Ireland, deer are long associated with our folklore. Because they lived in the wilderness and avoided humans, the ancient Irish regarded deer as strange animals that consorted with the other world beings. Well, you know Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen, Common and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. These are the names that spring to mind when you ask people to name a deer. But these are very special deer. They are reindeer. And actually, there are no reindeer in Ireland. To find out more about reindeer, I travelled to the town of Karuna in Swedish Lapland, 150 miles north of the Arctic Circle, where I met conservation ranger Lars Olsen. Well, the reindeer is uh, an animal that lives in pack, and the, the packs can be quite huge. And their natural behaviour, they react on danger to pack themselves together. And that's, that means that you can gather them, you can collect them, and gather them in corrals, because they are running in large herds. And so the psalmist does. They gather them, put them in big corrals, put out the animals for slaughtering, and they sell them. That's how they make their living. So they're a domesticated animal, they're no longer running wild? They are still running wild, but they are domesticized in a way. They are owned by the Samis. So they are private property. But they still live like wild animals. They don't live in around houses. They live freely out in the mountains. How do they adapt to this cold weather, to the snow, to the ice? They have a wonderful fur. The hair straw from a reindeer fur is, there's a hole in it. It's full of air which means that they have very good insulation. They can take a lot of coldness. And they are feeding on lichens, mainly in the winter, which they can smell 
even through thick snow. They smell it and they dig it up. Yeah. And they have this enzyme that breaks down the lichen, that's the lichenase, which is really unusual. Yeah, but that's the way of... They have adapted to, to stand the situation they are living in. Now, travel up here means snowmobiles, is that right? It's easy enough for humans to get around. It must be difficult for the reindeer to herd over, what, hundreds of kilometres? That's hundreds of kilometres, but it's their way of living. A lot of them dies, of course, but they also have a quite fast dynamic in, in the population. They get calves every year, they can live quite long. The females can get a calf when she is 16, 17 years old, which is quite unusual. The other deer that's present here is the largest deer of all, the elk, is that right? Yeah. We haven't seen any yet. It's the same with them. They are still high up because of the snow depth. When the snow gets deep, they come down and we will see maybe 50 of them along the road to Nikolokta. Now, you don't call them elk? No. We call them moose. (laughs) It's the American way. (laughs) And how is the moose adapted or the elk adapted? They are feeding on birches and willow in the wintertime. And there is tons of willow in the mountains. All the river deltas is full of willow. And the moose is a lazy animal. It's just standing inside the willow and eating from dusk to dawn. And is it getting enough nutrients from that food for such a big animal? It's very fat after the summer because it's been living on grass and herbs during the summer, so it's extremely fat in the autumn. And in the spring, all the fat is gone, of course. And what predators would the reindeer and the elk have up here? Uh, the elk, the only animal that predates on elk here is the brown bear. We used to have wolves here before and they eat quite a lot of, of elk, but the wolves are gone. Reindeer have different enemies, the brown bear of course, but also lynx and wolverines and golden eagles. So there are over a quarter of a million reindeer in Swedish Lapland, living in huge packs, but owned, herded and slaughtered by the Sami the native Laplanders. The various body parts can be put to many uses. They use the reindeer, the meat itself, of course, for food, the blood for food. They use the guts to make sausages in, and they use the skin for clothing, shoes. They use the entire animal. They use even the antlers to make tools from. Knives, for instance, wonderful Sami knives. If the reindeer provides such sustenance for the Sami, surely the much larger elk is even more important. There are about 130,000 elks shot in Sweden yearly. So it's, it's a big thing for, for the hunters in Sweden. It's, and it's the, the biggest target for them. It's a, it's a huge animal. And can the species maintain that cull every year of 130,000? Yes, it can. I think the highest rate of shooting has been over 200,000. That's maybe 10 years ago. There's also a lot of problems with the elk. Car accidents, of course. You can find them on, on the roads. And they destroy a lot of forests. So the forest industry, which is very, very big in Sweden, has problems with elk. Despite its enormous size, I was surprised to discover that the elk has a somewhat feeble call. Generally speaking, the bigger you are, the better, especially if you live in a cold climate. The elk 
is a good example. We humans find it very difficult to adapt to the cold. Not so the reindeer. They live in extremely cold regions and have many adaptations to help them survive. They have a certain way of bloods, yeah, make the blood circulate in the body. They keep the blood, most of the blood, in the center of the body, which means they have a lower temperature out in the feet, for instance, than it has in the center of the body. That's one way of adapting the, the coldness. One of the greatest threats to the fallow deer in the Phoenix Park is not the cold, but rather a virus. 2001 saw the outbreak of foot and mouth, a highly contagious disease spread by the movement of infected animals, contaminated vehicles or even by the wind. Aptovirus, which causes this disease, is in the same family of viruses as the common cold. We were amazed at the concern of the public and uh, it was interesting to note that uh, whereas we might have considered uh, in England uh, uh, measures were a bit lax, one of the first things that they uh, done was to close some of the royal parks uh, to protect the deer. Uh, now, we, as you're probably aware, Terry, uh, we didn't allow people to stop in the park or use the park uh, and people were very responsible, behaved very responsibly uh, to that directive. Uh, and we feel it probably gave the deer a great break even from, uh, you know, the human touch as well. Uh, it was a concern. It's left us looking at the possibility that maybe we should uh, establish uh, some smaller herds from P- Phoenix Park genetic stock, if you like, in other parks. So if we were unfortunate enough to have an outbreak in the park here, uh, well, then we wouldn't have lost the genetic strain. Now, that's something I'm sure uh, Tom Hayden and our own uh, Dukas wildlife people uh, will be looking at over, over the months ahead. What's the greatest worry you have for the deer here in the park? Uh, I suppose, well, certainly foot and mouth was something that sort of uh, had us running scared, you know, but uh, the fact that the cattle had gone from the park since 1983, uh, that lessened us a little bit, but we were having, uh, it was quite impractical not to allow cars through, uh, although uh, we would probably at one stage like to have uh, stopped any commuter traffic coming through, but uh, the wisdom of the day was that traffic would be allowed through. Uh, from the deer point of view, I suppose the thing that really I suppose upsets me most is people uh, running, allowing their dogs run through, and uh, we, we know from experience that uh, the deer can become very stressed. They are a very tame animal, as we can see from these uh, group here, and we know people can get quite close to them. But uh, once a deer sort of is, if you like, panicked and stressed, it can cause major accidents running across roads or and so on. So that is, a, is a something we'd like people to take care of. And talked about the running across the roads, I think you said to me at one time before that on average one deer per week is killed on the roads here in the park. Yes, uh, we reckon uh, the, the, the numbers can vary, but uh, we're probably talking about an average of around 40 to 50. Now, there are, we have closed off uh, about seven internal roads in the park as a result of a forced management plan. And uh, that has brought the accident rate, the normal accident rate with people in cars, and uh, down by over 50%. And we also like to feel that it has made an impact uh, on helping to reduce deer casualties. But there is more work we will be doing in relation to uh, public awareness, uh, you know, people's speed limits. And we do have uh, plans in our new management plan, which will be launched sometime next year, uh, to have... uh, to make the main avenue more pedestrian friendly.
friendly, which means the cars won't be able to speed uh, as much as they're speeding at the moment. Perhaps the most noticeable aspect of a fallow deer is the distinctive antlers of the bucks. And as we've seen already, they're not just for show. But the animals don't wear them all year round. They lose them. So what happens to them? I'm told if you're up very early in the mornings, around five o'clock, uh, walking around the park, uh, you have a chance of uh, you have a chance of picking them up. So there's people out there picking them up. I, I, I'd say so. Yes, I think there's probably a lot of samples of antlers in in people's homes throughout the the city and throughout the country. During the winter time, you know, if we have a lot of snow on the ground here in the park and they're maybe having difficulty in in feeding or finding food, yes. do you go out and help to feed these, or do you feed yeah, the deer? Yeah. Well, that's a question we get asked uh, 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 quite often, Terry. And uh, uh, deer are great foragers, and they don't need any help or human assistance. But we know that the public get extremely concerned and during very inclement weather, heavy snowfall, we will scatter a few bales of hay. Uh, it's more of a PR exercise than anything. The deer are very, very good foragers. We, you might know uh, there is a, a deer feeding crib over on the far side of the park and we suspect that that was a time when probably there was very large numbers of cattle grazing as well as sheep in the park, so there would be a greater competition for food. But uh, I suspect one of the reasons they're so healthy is that they have a, a free run at this magnificent grass in the park here. And that's what they feed on, almost entirely on, I believe. Yes, absolutely. They're, 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 they're grazers and, uh, you know, and they're foragers as well, so you'll see them sort of... And certainly during the... Uh, this season, a bit earlier on, they would also would be eating some of the conkers uh, from the archa and some of the oak, and that would be traditionally we know from some of the uh, post-mortems on the deer that they would have eaten quite a lot of uh, the nuts, the mass, uh, the fruit mass. It's now early June, and the dawn chorus is in full swing. The distinctive song of all our common garden and woodland birds can be heard here in the Phoenix Park, along with one or two not so common. The blackcap, for instance, singing away in deep undergrowth. Overhead, swifts can be seen high in the sky and swallows feed on the insects just above head height. The 40 shades of green can be clearly seen as the young leaves burst from dormant buds. But all this goes unnoticed by Tom Hayden and his researchers. This is the birthing season of the young fawns and Tom has just a few short days to catch and tag as many of these as possible. The females have what's called a hider strategy. They tend to hide the fawns who don't follow their mothers maybe for a week or so and the females tend to be around in the vicinity, but not necessarily close to them. Of course, that's um, a defence strategy, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, it's not it's quite them. the opposite to, say, what people would have seen on video recordings of wildebeest, when the young sort of hits the ground almost running. Yeah. And here they tend to... They're quite capable of running, but they tend not to. Mm-hmm. But once they get about a week old, they then tend to run rather than sit. And um, they so also you... tend to move slightly, so the females may... Usually they tend to find a congregation here to an extent when they get slightly older. So what you have here is a line of net. It's probably 100 yards long or so with That's six right. or eight people on it and, and to try and drive the young into Yeah, well, we're hoping that... Well, we, ideally, we catch them with, with landing nets to start with, but um, if they run, uh, then we sort of try and at least cut off their route of escape. You know, using a, 
uh, and that which we hold up in their path, so to speak. Uh-huh. Now, it's fairly wet this morning, miserable kind of a morning. Does that affect you? Well, it makes us a bit more miserable, yes, but that's, but that's about all. No problem with the deers, though? No, not at all, no. I mean, uh, you only have perhaps in the deer's life maybe five or six days when you have a chance to catch it and tag it. Um, thereafter, it becomes almost anonymous in the herd, so we can't really determine much about it. But catching deer is not as easy as you might think. They are extremely fast animals and can easily outrun a human. However, Tom and his team have a strategy. Using up to 15 people, they walk a straight line through the woodland with nets, trying to surprise the unsuspecting fawns. And it wasn't long before we caught our first one. Common female, when you're ready. 25.5 hind leg one. 20 hind leg two. Tom, can you explain what she's actually doing now? Okay, well, we've just caught one. You can see how sort of suddenly you come upon them. This animal was lying, didn't move. The net went over it. And, in fact, we were wondering when it was covered by the net whether it was actually alive or not. It is, and now we're measuring it. So what we measure is we measure uh, essentially the length of its legs because that's what represents the reason we're going to have its size, size of its head, length length of its head. We check the sex... Note the colour. And what you're hearing now are the numbers being called out. We're now checking to see what sex it is. So it's hasn't probably been born this morning, so it's probably more than a day old, probably. No, it's about the size of a Jack Russell. About that. Well, we know exactly. We'll wait in a minute so we know exactly what it is. It's got lovely dappled. Uh, appearance the four very very clear. yeah this one is there are essentially four main colors in the park and they're not immediately obvious what there's black which is self-explanatory there's brown which is self-explanatory then there's one called called common which has nothing to do with its frequency it's actually to do with the color and the common ones are spotted but they tend to be somewhat darker and there's another one called menno which is a sort of a medieval term and those are the ones that look nearest like what one would think of as being a Bambi-type deer, spotted ones. Mm-hmm. No, it's going to be Now, you make a little squeal now. No, not at all. So this animal is... Um, has, seven, a, has a what? Six, seven, one. six, one. And that goes uh, on both ears. Yeah. And whoever found it Peter. can give it its name. So, Peter, what would you like to call it? Is it a male or a female, do we know? Ah, so, of course, you might want to volunteer the name of your girlfriend uh, to the general public now. I'm sure your dad would be terribly keen to know who it is. What do you want to call it, Peter? JD. 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 Right. We've now taken a few uh, hair from the, hairs from the animal uh, for eventual DNA testing. We'll eventually know who, this mother, who the mother is because we'll see the mother feeding it. Uh, we don't have to stay around to wait for it because within a three or maybe four more days this fawn will be following will join the herd with the big girls and then we'll see the mother feeding and so we'll know who the mother is is this a very precarious time for an animal that young I mean predators for instance um, it is we do find animals which have been um, got at by predators um, either foxes or dogs but not that many I mean you sometimes find they'll be scavenged if they die right. because a number of them will die for um, what's for the mortality a, rate of the young would it be 20 or 30% or so? Well, about a third of them won't make their first birthday, about. 
roughly about a third, you know, across the years. Um, you see, we, it's very difficult for us to tell what the mortality is like at this stage because unless we catch them first, we don't know they're alive, if you see what I mean. So we, we, we know nothing about the ones we didn't see. Yeah. So as soon as we, from the moment we tag them, though, we can then track them from then on. And about a third of them don't make it at their first birthday. And by the time they get to be adults, now there's, a small little, there's a small little piece of tissue that has come out when it's been tagged, has also been collected for DNA samples in case the hair samples don't work. It's now being moved for the first time. It's been popped in a bag. This is a whole doll, so we zip it up and weigh it. But very long legs, and then, as I just see there when she's going to the bag. Well, they do indeed, because they can run remarkably fast when they put their minds to it. And we find that, that the measurement of its leg, you know, what you heard is measuring its leg, the measurement of its leg is a pretty good indication of body size in general. So, So it's... So it's 4.59 kilos. A little over 4.5 kilos. A little over 4.5 kilos. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's about... Uh, we, we found some as lower than 3, uh, but that's, ex- that's extraordinary, you know. And this animal, it, when they're born, they have a sort of a little sort of membrane on their, on their hooves. We, we, we just tend to call them shoes. And these um, membranes get worn off. You know, as they finish out walking about. So in this case, this animal still has traces of these on its hooves. hooves. So can we just see its ho- hooves for a second? You can see there's sort of traces of these sort of little membranes on its hooves. So it hasn't been walking around very much. Its umbilical cord was its dry, so it's not has been born today. So it's been probably, probably a couple of days old. So what happens? So Favela is now just folding it up again and putting it back in the in the nettles somewhere. We just moved it slightly. In case when the mother comes back, she gets she scent gets some scent of scent of us. I mean, they find them. They come when when she comes back to feed the fawn. She calls it. The, 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 mother, the calls. mother calls and the fawn calls back. Uh, and may so actually, moving at twenty may, yards. No, not, not at all. Difference. We were very worried about this uh, when we first started tagging years ago because some fawns, when you put them back, they kind of explode and they race off. Yeah. A bit like birds from a nest. Uh, exactly, mm. and we were very worried, and so we took great care to try and find them again. And when we found them again. The ones that ran away were actually found closer to where we caught them than the ones that didn't run away. Oh. <laughs> See what I mean? So we were happy enough that it wasn't having an effect because that's something you, have to, something you have to bear in mind. Between them, Dr Tom Hayden and his team catch and tag over 100 fawns each year. This work is vital in building up scientific data on the fallow deer in the Phoenix Park. Here's another one within five minutes. Very similar colouring as well. Yeah, well actually we're... It's interesting because a lot of them so far. Can you get your hand around on the Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll hold the well, isn't she? Yeah. That's the point, yeah. Okay, I think somebody's. Mind your head, yeah, okay? Are its feet clear? Okay. So this is you put it into, I see, as well, by folding up the... Well, we tend just to try and keep it in a sort of curled-up position. In other words, do what we can without, disturb, without moving it at all, really. And a lot of the measures can be taken. I mean, Favela's been doing this for a number of years, so she can get most of the information without disturbing it very much at all. So, see, that's the colour. female. It's female, as you can hear. I'm now measuring its leg. This gives us an indication of how its skeleton is changing. You know, it's and it's fairly easy to measure. Like one. Huh? 
anti hind leg too. And the measurements that you take of its leg are actually more robust in the sense we could all measure its leg and get roughly the same answer. Measuring Party, its its girth. its girth is actually more tricky because it's a bit Delicous more difficult. Delicate and small and dry. Trade shoes and dew clothes. Will you ever catch this animal again, do you think? Or is it just you just catch them very much when they're... Well, we may catch it, you know, over the next week or or two. Uh, Probably not, unless... There is no real reason for us to ever have to catch this animal again because we'll have a sample uh, of hair from it, so if we need DNA information, we have it. There will be no need to catch it again, Mm -hmm. but I can think of to weigh it, for instance, to see the well. Yes, but uh, yes, but check for pregnancy and things like that. Well, my feeling is that that I think this amount of intervention is essentially required and acceptable. I think catching it again, you'd have to have a good reason to catch it again, and just to see how it had weighed, how it increased in weight, say by the time it was three or four. It's probably not necessary, yeah, to be honest. Too much stress on the animal. Well, exactly, because if this is a female, it'll be finished growing at about two anyway, so in fact, its weight will hardly change. Yeah. It's certainly, its, its skeleton won't change. I mean, its weight will fluctuate a little, you know, depending on what its condition. So you can give it a little squeak as the tag goes in. An earring, so to speak. More or less, yeah, it's about the same thing, yes. So the samples that are going to go for DNA have to be taken with gloves on to avoid contamination we may end up proving that his father was a nettle <laughs> or a human indeed absolutely and that's some hair being so taken. a small piece of hair with the follicle intact yeah, with the, yeah. And then we take a small little notch from its ear as another sample. And the um, hair samples get, um, the tissue samples get preserved in alcohol. Again, for DNA testing? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's just sort of a belt and braces, really. Now, we probably remember we noticed earlier on the edge of the woods there were some females trotting around looking in our direction. Yeah. The mothers of these two are probably out there, so they're actually some distance away. Could I mean, be a couple hundred yards. Yeah, but you wouldn't necessarily years. have known which direction the young were, you yeah. know. And so they're usually in the vicinity, but. Um, Will this stress out the mothers us being here in the woodland where they're young now? Well, well, clearly they were interested. Um, as to how stressful it is, it's a difficult thing to say because, I mean, people are moving through here all the time and these deer are reasonably well habituated to humans. You know, for example, if these were wild fallow deer, you wouldn't get within half a mile of them. In, and in fact, some of these animals have, um, have taken up residence in Oris and Uchteron where they pray havoc with the flower beds. Not much <laughs> and, to come to contact with humans in there. And so, um, therefore, you know, we, we've occasionally helped to try and get them out you know, to try to drive them out. But in, wonderful uh, jumpers, aren't they? Well, that's the point. But in there, I mean, there might be ten animals in there. On one occasion there were. There were ten there. We didn't see them at all. They were ahead of us all the time. We hardly ever caught a glimpse of them. They're so wild. Al. 14.4. Yeah. 
It's about it. Closer to L than Yeah, K. it's about how far is that from L? Yeah. So this would be west. This would be north. North. So so northwest about thirty meters. About thirty meters northwest of L. Dublin Zoo is one of the biggest tourist attractions in Ireland. Hundreds of thousands of visitors pass through the gates each year to marvel at the menagerie of wildlife from every corner of the globe. But I wonder just how many of them have actually crossed the road to witness the wonders of the fallow deer, especially in the rutting season. It's a natural joy to behold. It's true what they say, the best things in life are free. (laughs) 